Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Thank you, Mr. Intro Man. I'm Brendan and I'm here with Mark, the Vet Gurus, vetgurus.com. The place to go, Mark, the place to go to get all the old and the new podcasts as well and links to all the show notes as well. So we've got some very interesting stories, new stories this, Mark, some bit weird and wonderful ones this, this week. Quirky is what I would say, Mark, quirky. And speaking of quirky, what have you been up to this week, Mark? It is the week ending at 24th of August, 2018. Well, it's good to hear your voice, Brendan. I've missed you this last week. Um, I've, I've had a, um, a, a bit of a weird week, but this morning it was um, uh, topped off by a really pleasant experience. We were um, our local emergency hospital, um, the uh, Animal Referral and Emergency Centre here in Newcastle, um, uh, had a wonderful um, introductory uh, introduction to Newcastle, to introduction to veterinary employment in Newcastle. Um, we've we've uh, struggled a little bit, I suppose, here in the Hunter to attract n- new graduate veterinarians. They like to, you know, stay in the big cities, and um, and so this this day was an opportunity for um, for a few people to visit us from Sydney and try and get a bit of a feel for some of the things that um, that uh, happen amongst the vets in Newcastle. Some of the collegiality, some of the continuing education as well as some of the work opportunities so it was a very a very collegial morning Brendan and spent with um, some uh, local practitioners at Arik and um, and uh, I think they had um, 12 or 12 or 14 um, uh, final year students who um, were trying to get a feel for where they might like to take their career next so it was sort of one of those hopeful positive things I was I was felt very good about it afterwards. Good. It is good to feel good, isn't it, Mark? It, it beats those days that everything goes wrong. And I know we were speaking off air about um, a couple of other days in the last week or so that we've both had where where things don't quite go to plan. Well, but speaking of collegiate or collegial, I am um, a little bit tired this week because I've had a bit of a busy week and I spent Tuesday night, um, traveling out to give a seminar in the northeast of Victoria, so northeast of Melbourne here in Australia, to have a chat to about 25 um, vets up near Shepparton in Victoria. So, hi to all the Shep vets. And I did plug the podcast, so we might have a few <laughs> new listeners this week, Mark, from Shepparton. And, um, I was quite impressed with them. They, uh, they, well, actually, except one of them, I think one of them fell asleep fairly quickly into my presentation there, Mark. But, um, we had quite a good night and, um, we had a bit of a chat about the common, common diseases and common conditions you see in small mammals in private practice. So, um, I think they appreciated some of the things we had to chat about and lots and lots of questions. And then uh, the second half after the little break and scones and muffins and things was um, a chat about desexing of small mammals. And that could have gone on all night because we started talking about anesthesia um, of uh, unusual pets and um, some of these difficulties of dealing with the anesthetic protocols and, and what protocol should you use and I ended up saying my usual um, you know there's not one protocol that's better than any other and um, try and work out a protocol that seems to work for you that you know other people have used that seems reasonable and and concentrate on learning what works with that protocol and, and getting the feel of um, how the patient uh, is coping under the anesthesia so it was a really good night but Unfortunately, I didn't have anybody to cover me the next day, so I ended up, Mark, having to leave about ten thirty, quarter to eleven, um, to head back to Melbourne, which was about two two and a half hours actually by the time I 
got to my home. So I was a little bit tired at the end of that and um, I was a bit panicky on the way back because um, not just before I was about to leave, I think I had two of the vets in Shep saying, oh, the road you're going down, not far out of town on the way back to Melbourne. Um, there's lots of kangaroos and a lot of people have the kangaroos get um, bowling into their cars. So I thought, oh, great, here we go. I was already tired enough from the talk. <laughs> so I stopped off at the nearest service station and got a double shot coffee mark and um, that kept me going for a while to try and avoid the kangaroos. I must admit I didn't see any, thank goodness, run across the road, um, although I saw a fair few of the big trucks that were going between Melbourne and Sydney. Um, carrying all sorts of things that um, made it a bit interesting because I always get a bit worried about these big trucks that are hauling freight between um, major cities, Mark. Um, I always like to get past them pretty damn quick. I'm more worried about them than a kangaroo. I think with good reason too, Brendan. Those um, those uh, those um, trucks and their drivers are on a very tight schedule and, um, and every once in a while. But I read somewhere recently that it's the... Um, uh, the the one of the most dangerous jobs in Australia that there were um, across Australia there over a three day period last week there were six truck drivers themselves who passed away in motor vehicle accidents so your concern is well founded I think Brendan and one of those trucks um, not one of the ones that crashed of course but um, one of those trucks on the highway will be driving down from Queensland to deliver. Um, uh, some um, uh, Oxbow foods to various hospitals, Brendan. I have no doubt. Um, <laughs> and I thought, and I thought um, I would particularly, since uh, Specialised Animal Nutrition is one of our sponsors, and um, I was uh, very interested to get your opinion on one of their products, the um, adult rat food, Brendan. Have you been using this? Yes, uh, I have, funnily enough, and we did mention it briefly off-air, didn't we? Um, so it's only recently been introduced into Australia, the Oxbow rat food, and um, so far I think we've had it for about three months or so, and, yeah, it's it's doing quite well in the clients and their patients or their pets seem to be enjoying it. I, I like the shape of it. It's got a really rough sort of texture um, with it, and... Um, I tend to trust the Oxbow, not just because they are a sponsor of our podcast, but I tend to trust their products because, as you know, we've seen some of the papers and the presentations that they um, and the, the the research they do that they present at um, conferences. And I think you and I have both been to some conferences where the Oxbow veterinarians have presented some quite interesting um research into their their products and just nutrition generally of unusual pets so yeah we have been using it it's still probably early days as far as um how well they're going the only thing i must admit the negative that i don't like with it mark is that it does say on the back of the pack to feed it ad lib give them as much of this food as they want or just fill up the bowl and of and i know we've spoken about this before about obesity in in um, our little ratties and our mice um i don't like offering ad lib um pelleted food to these these patients mark so i like to restrict it and have the clients weigh or have a little container and i give it to them and say that's how much volume of the of this particular pellet pellet you should be offering your your little ratty and the rest of it should be ad lib um, veggies um basically that's what i normally go with mark so that's the only thing I, I i don't like about what is written on the pack um with it and i have mentioned it to jen and um and also micah um from oxbow so i want to follow that up again with them um and no doubt if they hear this they they may be on the email the phone tomorrow to berate me about it mark what's your thoughts on that well uh, hardly surprisingly i agree with you entirely we've found we haven't had it on the shelf as long as you, but um, we found it um, uh, very palatable. And um, and while it's, uh, um, you know, with the, the traditional thing, I suppose, we would uh, talk to people about um, using laboratory rat pellets, um, but those pellets, while nutritionally sound and functional for um, our um, lab rats, they're, they're probably not... Um, 
well, we often talk about um, uh, environmental enrichment and different tastes and flavours, um, and uh, and those lab rat pellets are relatively bland but functional. Um, but the um, pellets from Oxbow uh, have a selection of, um, of different plant material, which creates like a um, well, I'd imagine a nicer taste. And certainly the rats that we have started on it take to it pretty well. And I agree with you. Um, uh, there are some pretty overwhelming uh, benefits to ensuring our rats don't become overweight um, and, uh, and feeding anything, no matter how good it is, even if it's the best, feeding anything to our rats ad lib is probably not one of the things we'd be talking to our clients about. Yes, and I think it gets back to what we're always harping on about the environmental enrichment is very important with them, but if they're just sitting there all day in a small enclosure, regardless of what species that's happening and all they're looking at is a bowl full of food, well, it's understandable that potentially they're just going to hoe into that food and um, end up being obese, regardless of whether it's a rat or a, or a bird or a, or a guinea pig or... Um, or a wombat, Mark, a wombat. And as you know, we had a bit of a chat about wombats and the treatment of wombats. Um, I think we're pretty lucky, aren't we, in Australia, some of the species we have here and um, to get to touch and play and, and see and look at and photograph um, the, the species. And I always was amazed when I was working as a zoo vet that I'd be um, looking at a platypus one day and a, a venomous Australian snake the next day and an emu and then a, the crocodile um, and then a, an echidna and a wombat. And I think, gee, how good is this, Mark? How good is this? How um, good is it, Brendan? I, I mean, it was pretty good, but then again, you deal with the politics of zoos <laughs> and you think, how bad is this? <laughs> um, and unfortunately, as I was talking to a potential zoo vet the other day and um, on a bit of a downer with them and saying, look, the, the unfortunate thing about um, being a zoo veterinarian is it's, it's like any organisation, I think, that has more than one human being together, you end up with a lot of politics and um, even more so for some reason. I don't know why. Every zoo I've been to in the world that I've visited, and I've been to a reasonable number, um, there's always a lot of political um, things going on within the within the zoo, um, which is unfortunate because you think, gee, you're getting to treat and see and deal and, and cure all these amazing species that nobody else gets gets to touch and deal with, and yet um, you're arguing over really silly things like um, the bird keeper doesn't want you to treat the bird today because it's his or her day off, and um, if they're not there, you're not allowed to touch the bird. So, yeah. That's some of the things that you deal with, Mark. So, but that's life, I suppose, and that's that's humans for you, isn't it, Mark? And um, speaking of humans, I want to talk about and first news story, Mark. How's that for a segue? And I'm going to talk about something that's dear to my heart, and that's mosquitoes, because mozzies love me. I don't know whether you're one of those people that mozzies are attracted to, Mark. But um, you know the story how people uh, there's all the theories about why people are attracted to mosquitoes and why other people aren't. And I think one of the thought the theories at one stage was the carbon dioxide around your skin or something, wasn't it, Mark? But I think they've got they've discounted that theory. I think um, the carbon now, see, this is a bit of a Newcastle area of expertise. We um we have uh well, the biggest mosquitoes in the world over on Hexham Swamp, the the Hexham Greys, and so <coughs> It is a little bit of a, uh, a a special point for us. They they attract mosquitoes are attracted to carbon dioxide to get near um, you know a a, a, a blood meal, um, but then there are certain skin um, secretions, certain volatile oils that um, definitely make some people um, much more attractive than others. And I've always said that you're a very attractive man, Brendan. So it doesn't give me any surprise that the mosquitoes get a whiff. I, whiff. Per perhaps I, perhaps I just need to stop using old spice. Um, <laughs> I think that's what I need to yeah. do because, um, it's been around a little bit too long and I, I need to change my aftershave, Mark. Um, perhaps that is what I need to do. 
And um, you made me think of that when you talk about um, secretions of the skin, and, and I think you've solved it for me. Thank you very much. So I'll let you know if that works next week, Mark. So, yeah, th- this story is from – oh, I can't forget. It's from The Guardian, and it is – the reason why it's dear to my heart, apart from the fact Mozzie's love biting me, is it is about stopping the transmission of dengue fever by the release of special mosquitoes in Townsville, Mark. And as you know, I travelled up to Townsville every year for about six or seven years to give some lectures in exotics and unusual pets to the to the students up there, the veterinary school up in Townsville. So I was up there every year for a week or so, and it is an area that was very prone to dengue fever. And what they've done is... Over the last several years, I think the last four years or so, they they were releasing mosquitoes that were um, infected with the Wolbachia bacteria, which makes them unable to transmit viruses, and it's been a raging success. And they've stopped all outbreaks of dengue fever in the city for the last four years. So I think that's fantastic. It was probably a bit too late to stop the transmission to me, Mark, because um, I'm waiting for the results. And I think you had the same test done. We went to a conference um, last year or the year before, and I had my blood taken for a University of Sydney study looking at zoonoses and, and, and bloodborne and other orifice-borne um, infections um, in, in health, um, in people in the health industry. So I'm waiting for my result to see what organisms have been floating around my system mark um, and i wonder if dengue fever will be one of those but yes it's fantastic little study here and the thing that i amazed that amazed me about it is um it, it it if it they're going to scale it up to other other places around and the cost of the program mark was um incredibly cheap it was i think it was australian 15 dollars per inhabitant um but they're hoping that they can be made available to poorer cities in the world to um, the equivalent of around about us one dollar um to release the um, sterile if we want to call them that mosquitoes to help help stop transmission of dengue fever. well the other thing that's great about that story brendan was that um it would be amazing enough if it was um, just uh, dengue fever, but it, um, it's quite, uh, it would look, it from all research at the moment, it looks like it will be also effective against the mosquitoes carrying the Zika virus. And so um, it's quite possible that um, the projects, it looks like the project's going to be rolled out over um, uh, all of um, Rio de Janeiro. So that that's, um, uh, you, you, um, the director of this uh, program, um, uh, Scott O'Neill. He just—that's a legacy maker. I reckon that would be if you can have an effect on uh, diseases like dengue and Zika, um, that will make a huge difference to the quality of life and well-being across those tropical areas. It's an awesome story, Brendan. I don't think it's quirky at all. I think it's monstrous good news. It would be fantastic if that was, um, yeah, for that. For the, for that group, wouldn't it? You'd be saying, "I have done something. I have done something incredibly important." Yeah, and they're planning on then um, trialing it um, to help prevent malaria as well. The the other obvious one there, and you know, it's amazing how many. And as you know, I'm heading off to India soon, and I've I've had my options as far as the anti-malarial tablets I'll be taking, and I've just about selected, I think, which one I'm going to go with. But there were 216 million cases of malaria worldwide in 2016, and 445,000, Mark, 445,000 deaths due, due to malaria in 2016. So, you know, if it can even put a little dent in in, in that, um, if not a larger dent, it, it, it's fantastic. So, yeah, it is a good news story, Mark, see? So I'm, I'm slowly doing more and more good news stories. Yeah, they're, they're, um, what's your first story? I think your first one's a good news story. My um, question to you, Brendan, is... Uh, is your radio, your car radio, set to 1377 on the AM band? That's my first question to you. Don't talk to me about my car radio. My, my um, now you've put your foot in it. Um, I'm waiting, f- I am waiting for my little 
the head unit yeah. they call it, um, which which has the has the radio. It has a little CD player, although that's going not going to be there anymore. And my sat nav, and my reverse in camera, um, and my Bluetooth. Um, it died, oh. Mark. It died. It died about three or four weeks ago, and um, it was around about the time I was due to take my car in for a service anyway. And it's still under warranty. I'm not going to mention what. What brand of car it is, but I, I'm actually really enjoying the car, and it's not a, not an expensive brand uh, car at all. Um, so it's it's under full warranty, and they're doing a complete swap out. And apparently, um, that particular head unit with uh, with the CD player has been replaced, and it is getting upgraded to the newer version, which in, even includes the which my car when I purchased it, it was just before they were bringing in the Apple. CarPlay and the Android CarPlay, so I, I just missed out on that, so I was a bit annoyed, but I'll get it replaced with the new unit, which will have those in there, um, which I'm quite excited about. Well, well you won't. You, uh, I doubt then that you'll have your... But I don't listen say. to that radio station because I can't listen to anything at the moment. Um, so what I'm doing at the moment is yes. playing my podcasts on, on my phone. Um, and not through Bluetooth because I can't use the Bluetooth, and that's how I'm, that's what I'm listening to in the well, car. I know that, um, that I'm listening to the podcasts that you do, Brendan, would leave no time for your soft rock Spotify playlist. Um, and so uh, I, I thought that um, I might lead you into this story about stressed dogs um, by um, finding out about your musical tastes. But um, I wanted to talk to you about uh, this university of Glasgow study, um, the researchers worked with the Scottish uh, Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals to um, to see um, whether there was a pattern of well-being generated in the dogs, decreased stress, um, according to different genres of music. Now, it's pretty well accepted that when music um, is played, um, in shelters, um, that dogs are markedly less stressed. Um, but um, but this particular uh, study was trying to look at different genres of music, whether there were particular forms of music that um, that made the dogs um, more relaxed. And they just it was a relatively simple uh, study where they looked at the um, amount of time that the dogs were happy to um, rest and lie down and over large numbers of dogs, um, they could um, make an assessment of how stressed they were by how quickly they adopted relaxed body position um, and they could make an assessment about the sorts of music um, that uh, would, um, would make the dogs most relaxed, Brendan. And I'm interested to get your opinion on these particular genres um, and uh if you were to uh, look at, um, uh, you know, classical, reggae, soft rock, pop and Motown, um, do you think, which one of those do you think would work most effectively? Do you put in the pressure on me there, aren't you, Mark? Um, I must admit the station that I do listen to, if I do happen to put the radio on, is the one that the girls have sort of put me onto, and that's Triple J. Which um, which has um, a lot of the um, the up and coming bands um, on, on there, and um, I quite enjoy it when I put that on um, when I'm not listening to podcasts, of course, Mark. So, which one would I listen to out of all of those? Oh, I don't know, Mark. Um, maybe. Well, I hate to admit it, but maybe some of the old soft rock type um, bands um, from the, and I used to like those. The what did they call them? The hair bands, you know, the, the of the eighties and the nineties, you know. Um, and I think that some of those playlists on Spotify and all those sort of stations have those. Um, you can ask for a p- playlist for um, play me some eighties hair bands, and you'll get those sort of rock or pop or soft rock bands. So they're probably the ones Mark I listen to rather than what. Well, so what do you listen well, to the reggae ones? Are you the most? Well, interestingly <laughs> enough, the the reggae and soft rock um, were the most relaxing. The dogs seemed to show a slight preference for for those uh, um, musical genres, and Motown um, came in last. They were. Um, the least uh, uh, relaxed, but not by much. Um, so that's a, a, a good thing. That would be, um, you know, um, there might be some natural variation. I don't know that I'd trust the uh, um, 
the uh, the um, the research that much that I'd stop playing the old Motown songs. Um, and um, lullabies worked as well in an American study. So, so look, I think it's um, hardly surprising, but it's interesting to have this information so that um, you know we can uh, 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 just make sure that our um, animals are, particularly in those circumstances, um, that they're just that little bit more comfortable, Brendan. Somehow, I don't think I'll be piping lullabies through our vet clinic, Mark, to keep our dogs um, nice and relaxed. Um, I, I don't know how well it'll work. It might settle the dogs down, but I think um, the vets and my nurses would go a bit crazy and um, I'd be kicked out the door pretty damn quick. But, um, yeah, there must be. There must be. It, it talked about classical, didn't it, as well, but it didn't particularly have classical high up there as far as being relaxing. Um, so it might be a balance. Mark, between having some relaxing music for the patients that are in or do we put on relaxing music for the clients? What about putting on our podcast, Brendan? I reckon that that would would put them to sleep quicker than anything. (laughs) That would actually, it would, yes. It it tends to put a fair few of our listeners to sleep, doesn't it? I think we should move on to our next little news stories before we get on to our really exciting topic this week. And... I'm not going to go through all of this, Mark, but the topic, um, we will have the link to this particular news article in our show notes at vetgurus.com, and it is from the Mother Nature Network, as usual. 20 things you didn't know about zebras. Or maybe you do. I love this. I knew a fair few of them, but there were a couple of them that um, that were uh, new to me. But, um, yeah, this was an excellent article, Brendan, which was of the 20 things most people don't know about zebras which was your favorite well i like the old the old chestnut about um the stripes and their color that you know is the skin of a zebra black or is it white with black stripes or is it white with black stripes and um the the comment in this article is that the skin of a zebra is black and so does it make the stripes white um and i think that will be argued forever and 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 also, I think it was number two on the list is related to that as well. Talking about um, or asking why does a zebra have those stripes? And there's lots of different theories, Mark. And one, the obvious one is that it potentially provides camouflage, which, which I think it potentially. I'm um, definitely in the camouflage camp. Is a good. Yeah, it is what I would have thought. But there's some people who argue against that, and um, because apparently. 2016 research article of researchers said the stripes aren't for camouflage at all. That, um, but they discovered in 2018 that stripes don't help zebras stay cool, and I think that was pretty cool. cool. Um, yeah, um, and um, they have been able to eliminate certain theories. They do not know definitively. Why zebras have strikes? So that were the two bits that um, was two of the twenty points that um, I found quite well, well, interesting. I, I found one of the same ones, yeah. but I've, I've got a question for you. Being, you know, the the uh, the zoo vet that you are, when you shave a zebra, um, what what colour are they after you've taken the fur off? I cannot answer that, Mark, because it, it, I. I did not work with any zebras, but um, I don't know whether that's a loaded question or not. I, 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 have, I thought they were. I thought um, they were black. Hands. I thought the skin was black. I would have. Th- I, I would have thought they would but, be but underneath it. Yeah. You know, um, we'll have to do some research, Brendan. Well, for those zoo vets listening, please send us an email vetgurus at gmail dot com and uh, tell us what the skin of a zebra looks. like. Like once you shaved a white patch, um, so that's your homework for the week. Um, find an excuse to anaesthetise a zebra, and um, because zebras are quite narky, aren't they, Mark? They're quite um, feisty, the old zebras, and I think they have to be considering. And I think that's one of the points um, where they live um, that they have to cope with all these potential predators out there, um, because the wild zebras are only found in Africa. Um, and um, and they're quite feisty animals, so you know I don't. Even though I haven't dealt with them, I've heard that they're quite tricky to deal with, even in a zoo situation, because I don't think they have 
been domesticated at all, Mark. And that one, I think that was number yeah. another one of the points out of the twenty is that they um that there's um people have tried to domesticate them, but um they haven't been able to. So, so there you go. So that's um that is a bit of a quirky one. Twenty things you did or didn't know about. Zebras, Mark. What's our last little well, news so story the, today? Once again, it's a Mother Nature Network article. It's a little. I am. I to tell you the truth, this uh, particular article leaves me a little bit conflicted, Brendan. I'll explain my conflict in a moment. But um, but it's a, it's the story of um a French theme park um where the corvids, the ravens, um the rooks uh, that. Uh, that, um, you know, wander around the, the park have been trained to tidy it up, to pick up the um, waste of people. The park's falconers, they had a, a bird show at the park and so the falconers came up with the idea that um, they could reward the, the um, rooks uh, for picking up pieces of garbage and putting them into the bins um, and... Because they are so smart, it doesn't take much to uh, to um, train them, and they are very very good at solving puzzles. Um, and the relatively elegant system where, if they deposit a piece of trash into particular boxes in the park, um, they uh, they get a little food reward, and the birds, the the rooks, become very. Uh, very uh, keen at cleaning the park up. Um, and I think that my conflict is because this is a, uh, a wonderful demonstration of the intelligence of corvids, and many studies suggest that, um, you know, primates uh, um, and uh, um, cetaceans and corvids are probably the, the um, animals that show um, the highest levels of our sort of intelligence, I suppose. Um, and it's wonderful that that's being researched and used and um, and uh, there are practical applications. But, geez, I wish they didn't have to pick up after a spread. And what, what, what is the world coming to when the animals of the world have to pick up the bits of litter that people drop around at a uh, animal-focused animal, uh, theme park? I just, I don't know. The world's going to crap, Brendan. Yes, it it says a lot about the intelligence of the humans, doesn't it? Um, also, now, Mark, you need to with this article that you've found here. Um, can you please um, tell me the name of this theme park? <laughs> you could tell I was fastidiously, fastidiously avoiding displaying my absolute clumsiness at French pronunciation. You, 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 um, you've known me, per pure default. At Peu de Bois. <laughs> I beg your pardon? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it, um, let's just call it a historical thing. And his in Western France. Yes, France. Yes. Well done. Yes, no, I, I see your point with this one. I, I mean, it's, a, I think it was a bit, it reminds me of that story we did a, a week or two ago with the dog that pretended to do the CPR. Um, to help um, it not only educate but entertain um, children about uh, about first aid. Um, I think it's a little bit like that one. But, yes, um, <laughs> pick up exactly. your litter. Um, girls and boys, girls and boys, um, we shouldn't be um, leaving it on the ground in the first place. Well, I think we've... Um, Talked a, a, a load of um, a load of news stories long enough, Mark. We should get into our topic this week, and it is one that we get asked very frequently, and that is how to deal with mammary tumours, mammary neoplasms in rodents, rats, and mice. And I expect it's the same with you, Mark. We see a lot of mammary tumours in pet rats, especially. We don't see as many clients who bring their pet mice to us, but we certainly see lots of pet ratties. And I expect the two main conditions that we see with pet rats that are brought to us for are respiratory disease, which we have covered previously, and mammary tumours, Mark. So I think we'll do our usual, won't we, Mark? We'll go through the potential, the signs, um, the the treatment aspects of it and, and, and possible prevention um, 
for these um, mammary tumors. Um, so hence the title this year, It's Not a Tumor, um, as Arnie would say. So do you want to open up, Mark, and talk a little bit about how quickly can these come on? How quickly can they grow? What are the classic signs? Well, the classic signs, signs are, um, are one of the, you know, we often are presented with our exotic animals in with relatively, you know, obscure, non-specific signs. But these, these um you know, they're obvious. The rats play around on their owners. They're a relatively tactile pet. Um, they come into contact with their owners uh, quite a lot, and um, and the owners feel, identify the the um, the change shape, and they are relatively quick. Brendan, they can arise relatively quickly, um, and in relatively young rats, and so um, it would be very common for us to. to uh, to do a, a routine health examination on one of these um, beautiful pet rats, and then only a month or two later have them come in um, with a relatively large um, mass uh, that the, the owners have identified, um, sort of you know on their belly more or less, or down um, uh, under the front legs or between the back legs, anywhere down where those mammary glands are, um, and they can come up very very quickly. They often, um, that one of the things that um, maybe for those occasional rats that don't spend as much time with their people, um, uh, they, the people often notice the rats moving differently. Um, so uh, the way that the masses get to be in between the body and the legs and, um, and, uh, and they grow rapidly, the, the rats will move with a different gait or maybe even move a little bit less. Um, so, yeah. That, that, the, the alteration um, to the, the uh, um, shape, um, maybe sometimes they have trouble going to the toilet. On rare occasions, we don't see too many of them become ulcerated or infected. They get to be quite sizable and still the skin seems to cope pretty well over the top of them. So the change... Yes, and I, and, and I think a lot of them, um, because... I think, and I and I think it. Um, every, uh, uh, most people um, regard that it, they aren't particularly painful unless they ulcerate. So, the owners may put up with these particular lumps, and some of them do grow incredibly quickly over several days or weeks to um, centimeters in size. But I also see some that they've been they sl- then slow down a bit, and they may have been then just slowly growing for for weeks or potentially months and they may bring these ratties in that um, it's really a lump dragging a rat around rather than a rat dragging a lump around with them and, and the rat's not particularly fussed about these lumps or lump and I think that's part of when we talk about choices with, with potential treatments, it, it's not necessarily a death sentence, even if you are presented with a rat with a, a sizable suspected mammary tumour, um, because it may not have any real decreased quality of life with it, Mark, even if the client doesn't want to go down one of the actual treatment methods of, of getting rid of the mass. And and yes, I agree totally with, with virtually the vast majority of these are found in the axillary or the inguinal region because obviously that's where most of that mammary tissue is. But but you need to remember the mammary tissue does extend further than that and you may have a mammary gland tumour in a rat or a mouse that, that commences or starts perhaps, say, on the lateral body wall and then it grows dorsally. So so it's not unheard of to have a mammary tumour that ends up growing towards the back of the animal or, or even in between the shoulder blades and it, and it still is a classic mammary tumour. So so the take-home mes- message with that long little diatribe there is that just because it doesn't look like it's in the classic spot for a mammary tumour doesn't mean it isn't a mammary gland tumour, mate. So the next question we always get asked, Brendan, particularly, you know, the clients come in, they've found the rapidly growing mass. They want to know um, how malignant it's likely to be. Um, And our experience, I know there's a couple of different publications over the years, there's been a um, a sort of variable number put on the likelihood that um, uh, that it's a dangerous growth. Um, but in our hands, the vast majority of them are the benign uh, fibroadenomas of the mammary glands, and 
Um, and only a very, very small proportion of them end up being um, uh, um, malignant adenocarcinomas. What's your experience with the um, malignancy versus benign nature of these tumours, Brendan? Well, guess what? Exactly the same, Mark. Yeah, so, I mean, the, the way I usually um, mention it or teach it to, to veterinary students and even, even veterinarians is um, the easiest way to remember it is, I think, mice malignant. So the majority of the the memory neoplasms in, in mice uh, are malignant and majority of the ones in rats are benign. And I think we're talking roughly, we usually talk about what the 80% rule, don't we, Mark, that 80% of the rat ones are those fibroadenomas, a benign one, but it does mean that you will get some that are malignant. But I, I, I certainly find that the vast majority of the mammary tumours I see in rats, in mice, are, are malignant and, and it does shape what we're going to do with them in, in bottom line with the mice um, or a mouse that has these, it's rare that I will then potentially attempt to, to remove them because of the the difficulties that we do have a malignant neoplasm. Then the, by definition, it usually has um, a better or a greater blood supply, so they're often more difficult to remove, and it may already have spread elsewhere, and, and our margins um, need to be much wider, so it's, it's pretty rare that I'll try and remove them on on um, surgically on, on the mice, but on rats, I certainly um, remove a fair number of them. So, yes, exactly the same as you, Mark. Um, a large percentage of them are benign um, with, with the rats that I see in practice, yeah. So if, if you have one of these presented to you at, at, um, at say, a small to a medium-sized um, one, a single memory, suspected memory tumour in, in a rat, I suppose, going back one step, Mark, what should... What, what, what's your step as far as confirming, um, even though you're already suspicious it is a, a mammary neoplasm, what, what else could it be, this lump that's developed in the rat and how are we going to differentiate a neoplasm from potential oh, other causes? Brendan, we love, we absolutely love sticking a needle into these things. The rat, the rats just stay so still <laughs> and uh, so calm and relaxed, we've usually got to give them a short anaesthetic to be able to um, um, to do it, to do a fine needle aspirate. Um, and, of course, we're no, um, we're no uh, uh, um, histopathologists. We're not trying to present ourselves as anything other than clinicians, um, but we're definitely uh, able to, you know, there's been a couple of times that we've had abscesses um, that, uh, that, you know, initially we felt were likely to be um, mammary tumours and um, they were the result of one of the other rats having a bit of a bite um, and certainly the the dates uh, that I'm, yeah 20 or 10 percent of the cases we see uh, um, are likely to be malignant and certainly we're able to harvest a few cells and give ourselves a, an idea that there's um, um, more mitotic figures more irregular shaped cells um, in uh, those ones than uh, our typical fibroadenomas. Yes, well, pretty same here. Yeah, I mean, I'd yeah, popping a needle in there, doing a fine needle aspirate is. I regard as very, very um, easy to do and, and very low risk. So here yeah, it's it's frequently done, and and yeah, a quick um, gas anaesthetic and um, sedation or and or sedation, and away you go. And yeah, you can easily then differentiate um, pretty quickly whether you have some sort of neoplasm going on there or you have one of those other causes like you mentioned. And I think, yeah, the other two ones I immediately think of as on the differential list is is a bite wound and obviously then an abscess is what's formed there. But the other one, and it can be a bite wound as well, is a is hematomas and variations on those um, from from either a, a cage-made injury or potentially a fall or something similar, some sort of trauma with them. They're the, they're the ones I immediately think of. Um, and the rest, whatever they may be, and um, and I know there's probably a, another few on the list there at, at, at a, a fairly um, infrequent to rare with them, yeah. So, so what's your what what's your option? Um, what do you recommend to the client if you've done your little aspirate and you have a single, say, let's say, let's call it one centimeter um, 
mammary neoplasm um, and you think it's benign in a, in a ratty that's um, apparently not unwell otherwise, um, what do you recommend? Oh, Brendan, a chance to cut is a chance to cure in these circumstances. <laughs> but we are we're very um, uh, are very keen to um, to surgicalize these cases. The the uh, the rats cope very very well with um, the procedure and. Uh, and we do have to spend a little bit of time in the, you know, the post-operative period, making sure that our rats are, um, are not damaging the the, uh, the surgical site. But um, but we, I think, uh, once you do get a bit of a protocol of pain relief and managing tension on the wound, um, uh, the the uh, rats will leave these wounds alone, and um, and they heal up beautifully when they are left alone. So. We're very, very keen to cut them out, Brendan. Yes, as we are. And and I think one of the keys with, I think a lot, I certainly have a fair few vets who contact us and, and, and they're concerned about the possibility that the rat will self-traumatise and, and remove the, the beautiful work they've done and the, and the lovely suture line and, and, and the removal of that tumour. And, and I always say the same thing again and again, that, it, that it's usually inadequate analgesia um, that results in them wanting to chew out their wound and that it... it it is nothing to do with the the suture pattern they used or the fact that they used staples or intradermal or tissue glue. Um, it, it's usually inadequate pain relief with them. Um, having said that, you still we still occasionally see, and we do a fair number of these, uh, a bit of a crazy rat that no matter what surgery you do on that rat, whether it's a mammary tumour or any other sort of um, incision anywhere on the, the animal, it does like to rip itself apart and and they are indeed a bit of a challenge mark um, and that's where I try and get one of my super nurses in and there's a couple of my nurses who are who love making little straight jackets for these rats where we've done um, surgery on them major or minor surgery where the rat wants to chew itself apart and they make these fancy little vet wrap type bandages almost like a complete straight jacket body bandage um, with little holes for the for the limbs there and um Sometimes that's what we have to do with some of them to stop them um, going. At I have, I've seen a couple of yeah, um, I... your nurses. We we often refer to them as um, uh, turtle rats. By the time they're finished with the red um, cohesive wrap, um, the the uh, rats move along a little bit, plonk themselves down in their red shell. Yes, yeah, they do. They don't like it, do they? Um, they certainly don't like being been bound up like that but um, I don't think I would either but yeah sometimes you have to do that so yeah I think it's you know don't 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 my advice would be don't be afraid of removing these um, benign neoplasms because as you say a chance to cut is a chance to cure and and the good news is if if you they do shell out reasonably very well don't they mark most of them almost like the the way I describe it is a bit like the lipomas in the dogs. You know, they come out quite. You can see the capsule quite well, so you're usually confident that you've you've removed the um, the extent of that particular mammary tumor. And um, yeah, routine closure. I do try and put intradermal um, sutures in them, and then um, then we make decisions and we chat to the owner about the other sort of potential preventative steps um, with um, with mammary tumors and. And what is that, Mark? You know, what's the story? What can we do to help try and prevent these well, uh, memories? The, the, um, and it is a little bit of a – this is probably an area where there is some more controversy. Um, it is an area where uh, I know they're, they're, who knows what the right thing to do is. The, so the question um, comes back to um, should we, first of all, desex these rats at the same time? We know that these – um, tumours are uh, influenced by uh, hormones. And the other question is, um, do we start treating them with cabergolin? Um, because these uh, tumours, and um, mammary gland fibroadenomas in rats, um, are definitely influenced by circulating levels of prolactin. And the rats that um, get these tumours, uh, um, research would suggest, have unusually high levels of circulating prolactin um, and uh, cabergolin um, 
is an excellent opportunity uh, being a prolactin antagonist to um, to decrease the circulating prolactin levels and markedly decrease the recurrent recurrence rates, which is always, you know, you put a whole lot of effort into um, the surgery. The clients expend a lot of um, uh, emotional energy and cost, and the last thing you want is another one to pop up. So are you using um, cabergamon with these rats, Brendan? Not typically, yeah. I mean, so, the, the, yeah, I think it introduces another little complicating factor and that's the, the influence of the pituitary tumours um, as well, which are the prolactin-secreting pituitary tumours, which we were talking about um, in Shepparton the other night to the vets there and I'll be also talking about... Um, Next week when I head off to Gippsland area for another little seminar on the same topic to the um, Gippsland branch, the um, country branch, and we'll be doing the same topic. Um, so um, I'd probably go back one sec, Mark, and, 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 and talk about the, the prevention of um, these in the first place before they've occurred and, and the desexing of rats. Um, and mice, I suppose, if we want to go down that track, um, ideally at a young age, um, and and the studies that have definitely shown a, a drastic decrease in the in the chance of these mammary tumours developing as they get older. You know, I think the classic study was done on female rats um, where they desexed half of them, and and the other group half they didn't desex. They followed them for a good one and a half years, maybe longer, I think. And um, I, I think these results are pretty close to what they were, but don't quote me. Um, the ones they de- didn't desex, um, 49% developed the mammary tumours, so just on half developed mammary tumours. And they group that they did desex, um, both from the same um, colony, um, 4% mark. So, you know, dramatic difference with the preventative aspects. And I know we've both mentioned the the importance of desexing of unusual pets for various reasons, and we mentioned the fact in rats and mice uh, the desexing to help prevent mammary tumours. So, I think that's the first thing we need to sort of let our listeners know or remember um, that the desexing before these tumours occur. But yeah, once they've occurred, it gets a little bit complex, doesn't it, Mark? Um, so. The question about desexing them at the same time. Um, the positive with that is that the logically the thought is that potentially it will prevent further, you know, abnormal hormone production, for instance, and and um, and and maybe the contribution that has to the development of further tumours. But the disadvantage of doing it is another another chance for an incision that the um, that the animal may want to chew at or attack um, because you've had a separate incision or incisions to, to do the desexing on them. So that does complicate it a bit. Um, and, the, and the third thing that you can then think about using is the, the chemical disinfe- um, disinfection, um, desexing, so using our, our supralorin, our deslorin implants, um, which um, are, are highly likely to to have the same effect as far as um, stopping that production of the hormones and, and potentially that um, also the 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 downplay with the um, pituitary adenomas and the prolactin secreting pituitary tumours because older rats, especially older female rats, um, obviously have 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 a um, they develop a um, almost like a pulsatile, I think, um, abnormal um, estrogen production. Um, and then that has a feedback effect on the on the, um, on the the pituitary, which is, then increases the chance of those pituitary um, adenomas forming. And um, also that has the effect on the memory, production of those mammary glands because of the um, um, effect of the prolactin that um, is produced is there. So I think we've got these two conditions that are happening together, Mark, the mammary tumours and the the common, and it is common, the common pituitary tumours that occur as well. And the medical treatment of choice, as you mentioned, and I often call it the other, the other. I must mispronounce it, Mark, and I call it cabagoline, um, um, in what were you calling it? Cabergoline. Um, so yeah, we've got the two pronunciations of it. Um, is the potential um, control of of these um, 
pituitary tumours, um, it does seem to shrink down the tumours a bit. It certainly doesn't get rid of it, so the clinical signs of the pituitary tumours in rats can be alleviated in some cases. Um, but no, so my long-winded answer to that is um, I don't routinely put them on that particular medication. Um, maybe I should be, but, but I tend not to. I tend to just end up... These days, my, my routine is um, the ones I'm taking to the surgery, I usually recommend the implant, Mark. Um, so I usually recommend implanting them with the Desloran implant um, because that will last almost certainly for the life of the um, for the um, rat to chemically sterilise it and, and hopefully we're going to help prevent that pituitary tumour that may not have yet started I think in that animal. Do you do, you do the just implants, We just started doing the implants in our rats, Brendan, and I think the big thing for me was that um, there is at least some uh, recent uh, suggestive evidence that um, even if they have a pituitary tumour, um, that if you can remove um, the um, that pulsatile oestrogen um, uh background noise, um, then the pituitary tumour may remain, but it's likely to secrete less uh, prolactin. And in fact, there's been some suggestion that um, uh, that the, the pituitary tumour may um, regress a tiny bit. They don't disappear, but without the stimulation of uh, high levels of oestrogen intermittently, um, some of those pituitary tumours will um, have a different growth course and uh, secretory course. So I'm just like you. I think uh, um, uh, the cabergolin is a useful um, treatment for the, that last step in the endocrine process, um, but we may well be uh, um, doing equally or better by um, uh, um, placing the implants at the time we remove the mass. There's one other thing that um, I'm always talking to my clients about um, and uh, um it's, uh, it feeds back into our small animal, uh, a special, a special animal nutrition, our um, GENS um, product, is that um, the rate of these tumours in rats that are overweight is significantly higher. Yes. And one of the uh, um, management things that we always suggest to people with their pet rats is obviously desex them when they're young but also um, work hard to control their body weight um, and don't feed them ad lib. Make sure that you measure their food and uh, measure their body weight and keep them lean, Brendan. That certainly decreases the incidence of these tumours. As my wife Annie says, she keeps me lean, keeps me keen. Um, for my um, for my exercise, I'm talking about Mark. I'm not anything um, smutty there. Yes, and for my health, because as you know, off complete track here, I did have a um, echocardiogram stress test the other day, didn't I, Mark? Um, and I um, I'm proud to say I passed. I didn't faint, and um, I was quite chuffed when I read the report from the cardiologist saying that I have above average. Um, above average um, exercise tolerance. So there you go. Although Annie said the same thing when she she did the stress test and um, she was having some um, potential heart issues at the time and uh, she just had to walk gently on the um, treadmill and there I was running flat out and um, I got the same report here above average. So I think he just cuts and pastes that on all his reports to make his, his patients feel feel better mark um so maybe i'm not quite as um fit as i thought i was <laughs> yes so no yes I, I i um and we won't talk about dose rates um here but um i presume you are using that um drug uh every three days the dose well, we have um, to get it. i don't um, you, you've got to um, compound it up Brendan. Um, it's not a it's not yep. a medication that you can buy off the shelf but you, but you just the patient is getting is being treated every seventy two hours with it. Um, yep, yep. So it's the same dose. That yeah, yeah. And there are a couple of little case reports, aren't there, that um, have shown the effect of it and it works quite well. So our cabergoline slash cabergoline, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I know I'll be wrong with this because you're you're very um, 
on the ball oh, with the uh, pronunciation as you are with your as you are with your French. You know what I say about Mark? pronunciation, Brendan? I'm always um, happy to encourage people to try and pronounce things, and I'm always. Um, you know, that means when people mispronounce things, that means they've learnt it by reading. Um, and I always think that's a thing to encourage. So don't worry. I mispronounce heaps of things. And, and uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, uh, it's a sign that we've um, had a little bit of reading going on and that's a good thing in our world. That is a good thing. Um, it's always nice. I don't know why, but it reminded me of, of the very first words I ever said mark that my mother keeps reminding me of um and as you know in australia we have lots of towns that have names that are double names aren't they mark and i think you've had heard this story haven't you um so we have names like wagga wagga um at which is a country town so we we have all the all these country towns where the name is it's a double name and i think maybe it's because Maybe we're quite hard of hearing here in Australia um, or, or or maybe people have had a little bit too much to drink and they have to repeat themselves. But um, when when I was younger, my, our family were, were, we weren't particularly well off. We were quite um, lower middle class or, or maybe even a bit lower than that. And, and our, our family holidays with our, our, our um Five children, so as you can probably tell, um, because we weren't that um, well off, um, mum and dad spat out lots of kids because they probably didn't have much else to do um, at home because we didn't have all the all the fancy um, colour television until a little bit later, for instance. Um, um, and we used to go camping a lot, Mark, um, when we were young. That was our holidays because we couldn't afford to do anything else. So that was where I got my love for the outdoors because I'd spent a fair bit of time in a in a tent in a sleeping bag um, in the middle of the bush. And um, apparently, one of my first uh, my first words were "mitter mitter." Um, and um, that was based on the Mitamita River because we we're camping on the Mitamita River um, here in southeastern Australia. So there's a bit of trivia you don't need well, to I know. I can help Mark. you with a little bit more so, trivia, Brendan. Um, you mentioned the, yes. the wonderful town of Wagga Wagga where many of our um, uh, CSU graduates uh, are, uh, um, do their degree. Um, and Wagga Wagga is – I have a bit of a connection with the Wiradjuri people of the Riverina, um, and so I know the occasional Wiradjuri word, um, and Wagga Wagga is uh, Wiradjuri for crow. So it feeds back into our previous story. Um, and uh, so many places in Australia have this um, uh, double name because in many Aboriginal languages, that's how they describe plurals. So uh, Wagga Wagga is uh, the place of many crows, Brendan. Well, you're a you're a scholar, Mark. You've 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 you teach me something every week, don't you? Um, I learn something every week from you. I learn how to pronounce properly. Um, I learn how to um, describe towns um, more than once and um, talk about um, plurals and singular um, in. Um, in the vocabulary of our native um, Australians there, Mark, and um, I tend to um, wrap it on a lot, don't I, Mark? I think we should go. I think we should say goodbye to our um, our listeners and um, thank them very much for listening um, because memory tumours in rodents are something that you should um, should think about attacking them, those, those benign ones, but don't be afraid of popping a needle in there and, and confirming that it is a, um, a benign tumour and not something else because occasionally, as we both mentioned, we do get ones where there's something more nasty and then you have to think twice about removing them. Um, my standard work up for those ones, Mark, if I've got something more nasty and the client still want to go ahead with um, potentially removing it is I, I book it in for the surgery but it will be getting full bloods and also survey radiographs of the abdomen and the chest at the same time and if they're clear then I'd, I'd potentially consider doing a wide wide resection of that um, that tumour there um, so otherwise I wouldn't be bothering um, if I obviously found any metastases somewhere else so yeah, memory tumours are pretty common, aren't they, Mark? In these animals, um, just briefly while I remember, do you do you see many mice with um the memory tumours? Do you see many any clients with with 
many clients see with clients mice or with, not? Um, with our uh, the smaller cousins of our uh, ratty rodent friends, we do see mice with um, tumors, but um, and we do go through the same process. Um, it's certainly um, it's an interesting phenomenon that, um, in my experience, our clients are less frequently bonded to their mice. Mice behave in a slightly different way to rats, and so um, rats seem to cultivate that uh, emotional response much more than our mice. And so um, we we often find that um, even if our fine needle aspirate results, our cytology is uh, suggestive of um, uh, something that we might be able to remove. People are less inclined to go down that path. We are not very often um, uh, leaping to the surgical uh, um, surgical resolution. We're often trying to palliate for a short period of time. And our fine needle aspirate results very, very often, um, you know, it's almost the universal, probably 95% of them are malignant and, uh, and we're, we're um, just trying to make sure the animal's not suffering for the last few weeks of its life, Brendan. Yes, yes. And I think the other uh, final comment, final, final comment, with the rats with the benign tumours is uh, some of these clients do not want to take them to surgery, even though the outlook's potentially really good. And as I mentioned at the start, it's not a death sentence for them because they may, that particular memory tumour may sit there and, and grow quickly or slowly or, or stop growing and, and sit at a level where that rat's coping quite well. Um, and then um, it dies from something else down the track. Um, but I really do stress to the clients, especially while those memory tumours are at a, a nice size that are quite easy to remove, I, I do really push the clients to say to make a decision. I, I, I say to them, look, if we're going to to remove this memory tumour, let's remove it this week. Um, don't come back to me next week or next month when it's five times the size and you still want me to remove it. We either remove it now um, or leave it um, and hopefully it will never ulcerate and be one of those horrible ones that do ulcerate. That's an obvious quality of life decision. Um, um, but it, it may cope quite well and drag around that um, memory tumour that doesn't really cause it much problem. Um, so that's what I often say to them because I, I must admit, not you know, it's probably only it would be well, well, well below, probably sixty to eighty percent of the clients that I recommend um, the surgery will take take us up on the surgery. So the other, the other ones decide um, for various re re reasons, maybe cost that they don't want to go with the surgery. So we um, say goodbye. And we um, ask them to bring their rat back occasionally to check the lump and um, then they come back six months later and say, can you please remove this huge lump? <laughs> so that's what we don't like. So that's one of the bad days if we get that mark. So I think we've um, we've um, spoken enough about memory tumours and it's time for Mr. Outro, Mark, and we'll say goodbye to everybody and hello to our new listeners and um, don't forget to subscribe and recommend us to your other veterinary college and we will... We will see you all next week. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.